0: Hello everyone, and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host, Tony, and today we're going to talk about Hotel Mario, a puzzle platforming game developed by Fantasy Factory and published by Philips Interactive Media for the Philips Compact Disc Interactive, or CDI, back in 1994. Before we talk about that game, though, as is usual, we have a little bit of housekeeping to get done with up front. This is episode number 15, the first episode of 2023, so happy new year to all. I'm incredibly excited to be talking about this game in particular, but also just excited to continue the podcast because I've been having a heck of a time. If anybody would like to reach out and provide suggestions, comments, feedback, if you have ideas about new games or or old games that you want to hear about during the podcast or just want to talk about gaming or technology in general, there's a couple of ways you can reach out to me. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I also have a Twitter account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. So if anybody would like to reach out, provide your thoughts, feedback, or suggestions, I am legitimately interested in hearing what you all think. For anybody who may be new, welcome. I do just want to go over real quickly what the anatomy of an episode is, because for the most part, each of our episodes follows a very similar format and structure. We always start by talking about the history and the historical context of the game in question. Where does it sit in the overall historical context of the gaming industry? And then after we talk history and how the game was made, we then go into a pseudo-review kind of section, and I call it a pseudo-review because it's not like we are assigning a specific point value to any game. But we do talk about the games from the perspectives that you would typically see in a review. Things like the graphics, the sound and the music, the narrative or story, if the game has one overall playability and controls, and also how it feels to play the game today versus when it may have been released 20, 30, however many years ago. And we do all of that in order to reach a verdict as far as how the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game makes it into the Pantheon, you know it is truly a classic game and you should play it. It doesn't matter that it may have been released 30 plus years ago. It is still that darn good and you owe it to yourself to play the game and have that experience. It has just stood the test of time and is amazing and you should still play it today. Just below the Pantheon are our golden oldies. These are the games that don't quite reach pantheon level they are still really good games and i still highly recommend that you play them particularly if you have nostalgia for the game or you enjoy the genre you should absolutely check them out i mean i think anybody should check out our golden oldies Um, they're just not quite at that pantheon level they may have aged a little bit but overall they are still worthwhile experiences that are definitely worth your time today Moving on down the list, we reach our mediocre mentions. These are games, and now we start getting into the games where I can't really recommend that you play the games. These probably aged eh, fairly poorly, might have had some issues to begin with. I can't in good conscience say go out and play these games because most likely there's something wrong with them where it just doesn't feel as good to play today. You may still have a good time if you particularly enjoy the genre or you have nostalgia for the specific game we're talking about, certainly go ahead and try it out again, but I can't recommend these games to the majority of the population. And then finally, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. These games, I cannot recommend anybody play. I mean, you certainly could if you want to. I can't control you, nor would I want to. But I cannot recommend any of these titles. They have either aged very poorly, or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That being Hotel Mario. Hotel Mario was a puzzle platforming game developed by Fantasy Factory and published by Philips Interactive Media for the Philips CDI back in 1994. So how did Nintendo allow one of its most prized characters, one of its its mascot, its major mascot, to be licensed to a totally unrelated gaming system that wasn't even going to be developed by Nintendo itself? Well, there's a story here, and we're going to dive deep into this story, and it really involves three major players. There's Philips, which is a large multi-product company based in the Netherlands, and two Japanese juggernauts of companies, Nintendo and Sony. Interestingly, all three have worked together and against each other in various ways over the years. Sony and Philips, as an example, were the companies that jointly developed the concept behind CD-ROM technology, and they were responsible for the first audio CDs, which were conceptualized in 1980, and the first disc was released in 1982. Now, when we talk about CDs, especially today, now, I guess it's a little bit different today, truly today, because... CDs as a thing are, I guess, a little out of fashion now because most music is streamed, most videos and games, a lot of games are digital now, so you don't always have CDs as the core way you're consuming your entertainment. But when we start talking about the kind of historical context around CD-ROM technology, specifically as it relates to games in the late 80s to 90s into the early 2000s kind of time frame, we kind of take for granted that CD-ROMs were always CD-ROMs, and that just was not the case. When CDs were originally conceptualized, the only CDs that you had out there were audio CDs, and audio CDs were just that. You couldn't really store data on discs. It was purely tracks of music. The actual way to formulate or to store Actual data on the disks, which would become CD-ROM technology, was still years away at that point. And Philips and Sony would work together to develop multiple CD formats over the years, with one being known as the Compact Disk Interactive Format, otherwise known as the Green Book Format. Now, I do want to take a minute to talk about these so-called rainbow formats. You may have heard of the term Red Book Audio, which a lot of times when you're playing a game or when you're trying to get a game, some of them, especially in the nineties would tout that they included red book audio and it kind of sounded esoteric. It sounded kind of exotic. It's like, Oh, red book audio. I I absolutely want to play this game now because it probably has the most advanced audio out there. In reality, these rainbow formats, and I say rainbow formats, because there are a number of different color format, audio or color format, CD-ROM formats. Redbook audio simply refers to the internal format that was developed by Philips and Sony for the original audio CD format. So when you see the term Redbook audio, all that means is CD audio. It's audio that's stored on a CD. Some people might ask, well, why was it called Redbook to begin with? Um, The fact is because the format was originally defined in a manual that had a red cover. And that's not a joke. That's actually accurate. The only reason it's called Red Book Audio is because the literal book that contained the format had a red cover. And there were other such formats developed over time, such as Yellow Book uh, CD formats, which was the format for CD-ROM technology that would eventually be used on computers. So when we think about the CD-ROM technology that was pervasive across the computer landscape, that was considered the Yellow Book CD format. There was also an Orange Book, which would define the format for CD recordable media And that was actually dubbed orange, not because the book itself had an orange cover, but because it was a combination of audio, which was red book, and data, which was yellow book. So red plus yellow equals orange. And there was also the aforementioned green book, which was used to define Philips compact disc interactive format. So Philips and Sony were no strangers to CD technology. They literally wrote the book as it comes to CD technology. Nintendo, however was not really familiar with CDs and most people probably recognize that it took Nintendo a long time before they released any sort of disc based system. And even today they've gone away from disc based systems. So Nintendo has never really been on the CD bandwagon, so to speak. Now before Sony entered the video game market as a major player in the industry. Of course, Sony being responsible for the PlayStation that uh, has, is now on its fifth iteration and that many people know and love. But before that, they were partnering with Nintendo to develop the audio subsystem that would be included in Nintendo's 16-bit console, which was the Super Nintendo Entertainment System or Super Famicom in Japan. Now, this partnership was actually a secret. A Sony engineer named Ken Kutaragi developed the audio hardware unbeknownst to the rest of Sony leadership, as he had been impressed by seeing his daughter play games on the Nintendo Famicom. So he was actually impressed by seeing his daughter play these games, and he wanted to get in on the action. He wanted to actually contribute to Nintendo's next system. So he wanted to work with Nintendo. He took this contract with Nintendo, and as you might expect, Sony leadership was not pleased with the secrecy behind the work. He did, however, secure the backing of one Sony executive, a man named Norio Oga, and as a result, his work was allowed to continue. The project and the collaboration between Sony and Nintendo would be a success, and would lead Nintendo to want to partner with Sony again to develop a CD-based add-on for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, with initial discussions on the related CD format, which was known as the Super Disc, occurring in 1988. Under the terms of that deal, Nintendo would get the add on for the Super NES, while Sony would be able to release a Sony branded console that would play the new Super Disc format as well as Super NES cartridges. Nintendo believed that the deal gave too much control to Sony, though, in terms of how they could retain the rights to music and software released on the Super Disc format, and because of that, Nintendo reached out to Philips once again in secret to see if they could strike a deal. Philips, which was an original collaborator with sony when they created the cd format they had now become sony's chief rival in the overall cd kind of environment Now sony didn't realize that nintendo was going behind their back to work out a deal with Philips. so when they got to the consumer electronics show or ces back in 1991 they expected nintendo to announce their previously agreed upon partnership at the show though Sony announced their PlayStation, which was a CD based console that could also play Super Nintendo titles. But when it came time for Nintendo to announce their partnership with Sony, they actually announced a partnership with Philips to create a CD based add on for the Super Nintendo. This absolutely shocked everyone, and the relationship between Sony and Nintendo never really recovered. Though, It did pave the way for Sony to completely strike off on its own to create what would become the Sony PlayStation. Ken Kutaragi, who was the individual, the Sony engineer that had worked clandestinely on the creation of the audio subsystem for the Super Nintendo, would become the father of the PlayStation and was eventually named the president of Sony Interactive Entertainment, which was the entire video game division of Sony. I'd say both Sony and Kutaragi did okay for themselves in the long run. While Nintendo and Sony's relationship was souring, Nintendo's and Philips' relationship was just getting started. Philips, as we had talked about, was the original partner with Sony who developed CD technology and various formats in the early 1980s. As the late 80s and early 90s approached, Philips had a grand vision— they were going to release a computer-like device to the market, primarily for professional use, that would allow for CD-based demonstrations of products and edutainment titles to be used in educational institutions and schools. At the same time, as Philips was partnering with Nintendo to build an add-on for the Super Nintendo, it was readying the release of its own CD software-based system, known as the Compact Disc Interactive, or CDI, to the professional market, which would launch in 1988. So the original focus for the Philips CDI was the professional market. It was designed to be a simplified version of a computer and was often used by individuals who needed to give demonstrations to people while on travel. Think about people like pharmaceutical companies or pharmaceutical reps that are traveling to doctors' offices to demo new treatments and drugs. The CDI was small enough that you could travel with it. Technically, I guess. I mean, it's still pretty heavy, but it was technically small enough that you could travel with it but it was also powerful enough that it could display multimedia visuals and wow customers with these demonstrations. It didn't take long for Philips to realize that they could potentially take that system into the home market. So in late 1991, they released a version of the console to general consumers. This was priced similarly to PCs of the time, though it was still a little bit cheaper than what you would see in the personal computer market. The Philips CDI, when it was originally released to the home consumer, was around $799. Now, as you might expect home adoption wasn't really happening. It was a little bit too expensive and a little bit less feature than what you would get in a typical PC. So the whole adoption from a home consumer perspective just wasn't really gaining any traction. And most of the software that was being released was either reference-based, like museum tours or encyclopedias. Remember, back then, there really wasn't an internet. So if you wanted to get an encyclopedia or you wanted to get information online, in quotes, you were pretty much buying a uh, an encyclopedia on disc and using it, which by the way, encyclopedias on discs, you could probably have an entire episode just about that, like in Carta and Compton's Interactive Encyclopedia. I used to love those things. And by the way, I used to love just scouring the articles and watching the videos and listening to the audio in those. They're kind of cool, but I mean, they don't really have a place in today's society, so to speak, because of the internet and the pervasive nature of all information being available to you. But I actually really enjoyed those interactive encyclopedias uh, back then. Anyway, um, other than those reference-based kind of titles, the CDI was also the home for a lot of edutainment and kids-focused titles like talking storybooks or board game recreations like Connect Four. Connect Four was actually one of the early games that was released for the system, and it is about as exciting as you would expect. It is literally the game of Connect Four, albeit on a screen. That you can play against the computer. And if I remember correctly, I believe I played the game. Well, I know I played the game on my Philips CDI probably around six, seven months ago or so. And if I recall correctly, the CPU was incredibly challenging (laughs) like it was really hard Um, but these were the kind of things that phillips was releasing to the home market so nothing that was really going to set the world on fire especially if you compare those games with other console makers of the time like sega and nintendo so they decided to shift their focus and rather than uh, position their CDI as a professional kind of system with some entertainment titles or maybe some board games on disc, they wanted to shift it and really focus more so on creating the CDI as a home video game console. So rather than being a a substitute for a full featured PC, they wanted to create it or they wanted to refocus their efforts as a video game console, very similar to what Nintendo and Sega was offering at the time. So in 1992 phillips began going really hard at the video game market and they unveiled a slew of new full motion video titles like dragon's lair mad dog mccree and others for eventual release on the system i do want to talk a little bit about full motion video and the cdi because the cdi was effectively the console for full motion video Now you might say well the sega cd also had a lot of full-motion video capabilities and a lot of full-motion video games. Yes, it did. I absolutely agree with you, and I love my Sega CD for that very reason. But the Philips CDI was a little bit unique. And the reason it was unique is because not only was it a CD-based console, which meant it had the space for all of the data that would come along with full-motion video, but there was also an optional add-on called the Digital Video Cartridge, or DVC. That, if you bought that, which I believe cost around between $100 and $150 back when it was originally released, somewhere around there, I think, it would allow for MPEG-1 decoding of the video that was stored on the disk, which meant that you could actually have much higher quality video on the CDI than what you would have on nearly any other console at the time. It was a night and day difference. If anybody's ever played a full motion video game on the Sega CD, you will recognize that the full motion video usually has some color artifacts or dithering that's happening. It's a generally low resolution. You know you're playing a game. It's not just a video. Whereas if you recall or if anybody was... uh, Frequented arcades back in the early 90s when a lot of the full motion video laserdisc titles were out, like all of the American laser games with Mad Dog McCree and Crime Patrol and the, the Fast uh, Fast Raw Showdown and all this kind of stuff. There were so many games out there, and on Laserdisc, the video quality was very high. You didn't really have that in the home console market because the Sega CD didn't have that capability. The Philips CDI did though with their digital video cartridge and because all of the video could be encoded using MPEG-1 decoding or MPEG-1 encoding and then decoded by the digital video cartridge, you had the ability to actually have video that rivaled actual VHS tapes of the time because DVD wasn't really a thing just yet. So if you watched a video or you played a game with full motion video on the Philips CDI it was pretty much the best version of the full motion video game that you were able to get even better. A lot of times than what you would see on the PC, because even the PC didn't have MPEG one decoding built in to many of the systems. You had to have a a separate add on card that was typically sold by companies like creative labs to uh, actually do that decoding. So a lot of times it was all software based decoding or decoding on your CPU, which just wasn't as powerful. So the CDI was actually a very powerful system when it came to full motion video games. And as I think you guys were probably aware at this point, if you've listened to a few of these episodes, I love full motion video games. I, I don't know why. It's just one of those things where it hit that, that point in my life when they came out that I absolutely loved them and I just fell in love. So I love full motion video, which means by extension, I must love the CDI because most of their games or a lot of their games have full motion video capabilities. Anyway. We'll talk more about the CDI and and the specific game we're talking about for this episode, and we'll see how I feel about that. But as we continue to talk about the CDI of the time, beyond the full motion video games, the system was also capable of playing digital video CDs in full screen, full motion video glory. You could actually buy digital video CDs. And once again, this was before DVDs were really a thing. You could buy these digital video CDs, play them on your Philips CDI, and get a really nice multimedia experience. It felt that the video was smooth, it was very clear, it was crisp, it was just a really good experience. I do want to mention, however, that the CDI originally was not designed as a gaming device. It was designed as a content consumption device, basically a simple computer, like we talked about. It was really for a professional setting. They eventually released it for the home consumer, but it was still not designed from the outset for gaming. It was really designed for consuming content like the edutainment titles or watching videos or things like that. They didn't even offer traditional controllers as part of the base hardware bundles. When you would buy a CDI, when it originally came out, you would get a television-style remote control with a little thumbstick included and some buttons that you could technically use for Quote unquote gaming. Uh, by the way, those remote controls were absolutely horrible. Uh, so I do not recommend you try to play any game using those remote controls. But you can see that it was really designed for content consumption. It was not designed as a gaming device. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of the CDI games had limited interactivity. It just wasn't designed for it. Now, I do want to say, that there were actually a number of peripherals that came out for the CDI as time went on that would make it a little bit more of a gaming kind of device. So rather than just having the television-style remote controls, they eventually came out with actual gamepads, uh, a couple different versions of gamepads. One that actually looked a lot like the uh, Gravis, um, what's it called, the Gravis gamepad for PC, At the time, which was kind of the standard for PC, there was one that was, I think, was it the UltraPad? Something like that. There was a a controller for PC that basically was replicated as far as as the format goes for the Philips CDI. There was also a version of the controller that looked very similar to the Sega Genesis controller and having three buttons uh, across the side of the controller, like the ABC button that would be on the Genesis controller. Beyond those, there were also a number of other peripherals that came out. There was a trackball. There was actually a children's-based trackball that was brightly colored and oversized so that kids could actually use that to navigate games. There was also a mouse that was released, so you could kind of sort of use it like a computer, even though it wasn't really a full-featured computer in comparison to what would be out there at the time in the general computing industry. And then a couple of other gaming-based add-ons, one of which was, I believe it was called the Peacekeeper gun, which was kind of a light gun used for Mad Dog McCree and other similar kinds of titles by American Laser Games and other shooters like that. So there were a number of peripherals that would come out for the CDI that would extend its ability to have more game-centric interactions there were also a number of different versions of the CDI itself that would come out. And one of the reasons for that is, unlike Sega and Nintendo, who, if you got a Sega Genesis, you were getting the Genesis from Sega. Or if you got a Nintendo system, it was a Nintendo system. It wasn't just the technology. It was truly Nintendo owned that entire ecosystem. When Philips created the CDI They licensed the technology. It wasn't just a Philips kind of thing. So you might have found other companies and there were other companies that would create CDIs like Magnavox, as an example, was one of the companies that licensed the CDI technology and they created their own console, their own CDI under the Magnavox label. Um, So there were a lot of different versions of the CDI that would be released over the course of its lifetime. Some were very much focused on the professional market. A lot were focused on the home market. There were some that were actually portable in nature. I believe Sony even had a CDI version that was portable. Kind of crazy to think about around this time. It was just a very different kind of model than what most console manufacturers and most video game manufacturers were doing at the time. So around this time... Phillips was entering the video game market. That was right as Nintendo was making a decision that it didn't really want to go through with a CD-based add-on for the Super Nintendo. So this was now the second time that their collaboration around a CD-based peripheral for the Super NES would fail. So Nintendo decided we're just going to stick with the cartridge format, and anybody who uh, knows about the history of Nintendo their next console would be the Nintendo 64, which was also a cartridge-based system. It wouldn't be until the GameCube that Nintendo would go with a disc-based system, and even then, it went with its own proprietary disc-based system, Which because Nintendo is Nintendo. Now, even though Nintendo decided to not go through with the CD-based add-on for the Super Nintendo, they still had a contractual deal with Philips, and part of that deal... Was that Philips was granted the license to utilize Nintendo characters on their home console, the CDI? Now, the titles here would not be developed by Nintendo. They would be created by Philips or developers that they would hire to create these titles using Nintendo intellectual property. Nintendo would merely provide the rights to these characters. That is what led to the release of three Legend of Zelda games and one Mario game on the Philips CDI. That Mario game would evolve into Hotel Mario, which was a platform puzzle game that would take the hero of the Mushroom Kingdom and assign him his hardest challenge yet, making sure every single door in a hotel was closed. The task of creating this monumental adventure would fall to Philips Fantasy Factory, which was an internal first-party developer for the CDI, with the executive producer and designer for the effort being a man by the name of Steven Radosh. Radish was effectively responsible for creating the game, including the overall concept, storyline, and main gameplay mechanics for the experience. Now, there was actually a recent interview with Radish where he talked about the process of creating Hotel Mario, and during the interview, he noted that the team worked very hard to bring a worthwhile experience to the Philips CDI. They worked nights and weekends. They wanted to really develop something that players would enjoy. As the work progressed, Radish would routinely work with Nintendo to ensure that the game was capturing the essence of the Mario character and his world, and oftentimes various elements in the game were created based on reference materials that Nintendo had provided, similar to how licensing worked for the creation of DuckTales on the NES, which we had talked about previously. According to Radish, Nintendo was pleased with the overall development of the game, and even went so far as to suggest that Nintendo thought there might have been an opportunity to release Hotel Mario on actual Nintendo hardware. That ultimately never happened. Uh, As with many games, though, overall development of the title evolved over time. The team began by creating a simple experience that basically involved moving Mario around the screen and opening and closing doors. The action was pretty slow and Mario couldn't even jump, which to me sounds a little insane that there could potentially be a Mario title that didn't involve jumping of some kind. Anybody who's played a Mario title knows that one of his core mechanics is the ability to jump, and the early versions of Hotel Mario didn't even have that. Luckily, though, the daughter of one of the engineers on the project told him that this had to change since it didn't feel like Mario at all. So, as a result, gameplay was sped up and the ability to jump was added. As the team worked on sprucing up the gameplay experience, the task of creating fully animated full motion video cutscenes fell to a Russian company named Animation Magic, who also contributed to the animations for the various Zelda games released on the CDI. We'll talk about these animations in a little bit more detail later on, but spoiler alert, they are not good. Uh, interestingly, though, this is the same company that worked with Sierra to create some of the animations for King's Quest VII, The Princeless Bride, which had really well-regarded animations that a lot of people compared to Disney cartoons. So the company must have improved over the years since they worked on the CDI titles because King's Quest VII was a lot better animated than what we would have seen or what we did see with the Zelda and Mario games on the CDI. Voice acting for Hotel Mario was completed with the help of both a talent agency for the male voices and a friend of the team for Princess Peach. The rest of the audio elements of the game, including the soundtrack and various sound effects, were completed as the game neared its final release date. And finally, with all of those elements in place, Hotel Mario would release on the CDI on April 5th, 1994. Its initial reception was actually surprisingly decent. In the short term, it was considered both a critical and commercial success. Various game critics praised the game's puzzles and visuals and noted that it was a fun experience. Some people did criticize the game's difficulty overall, but it didn't get horrible reviews upon release. That would change, however, as more and more people began to experience the game. In the years that followed, Hotel Mario would be widely recognized as one of the worst games ever made and would be absolutely roasted across the internet for its incredibly odd-looking cutscenes. Nintendo itself, despite being pleased with the development of the title, never commented publicly on it after it was released. It was almost as though they wanted to disavow any knowledge of the game, and Hotel Mario is certainly not considered part of Nintendo's Mario canon. Now, I do want to say, for what it's worth... I get the impression that the Hotel Mario team did in fact want to create a quality title, but it seemed like they were restricted by the fact that the Philips CDi wasn't really designed for a lot of interaction in games. That's why full motion video titles were so prevalent on the system. Full motion video titles generally speaking have less interaction, but high quality video, and that was the that was the sweet spot. That was CDi's strong suit was less interaction higher quality video that was if you wanted to kind of put a caption on the cdi box that could have been the caption and that would have encapsulated what the cdi was really really strong at doing so i do have to give some credit to the team for creating something on the cdi that resembles a traditional game on other platforms if anybody ever tries to look at the cdi game library There are not a whole heck of a lot of truly interactive gaming experiences. There's certainly some, but the system just wasn't designed for it. So, Hotel Mario, regardless of its um, various pitfalls or the things that they may not have done well, they did actually create an interactive experience on the CDI that resembled. A typical game. And Radosh even said that if he could do it all over again, he would have loved to make the game more complex. It's just that the underlying CDI hardware didn't allow for it. Hotel Mario would be the only Mario game released for the CDI, though there was one other game in development called Super Mario's Wacky Worlds that was a more traditional Mario platformer that would never see a full release. Prototypes do exist on the internet, though. And if you have a CDI, you can burn a copy today to see what that could have been because the CDI has absolutely no copy protection on the system at all. If you own a CDI, you can literally burn any disc you want and play it on the system. Not that I would condone that from a legal perspective, but just for everybody's reference, the CDI has no copy protection at all. Obviously, Hotel Mario didn't really impact Mario's legacy. Mario remains one of the biggest pop culture icons in video game history, and we are about to, in the very near future, see a a brand new Mario adventure on the silver screen coming up with Chris Pratt providing the voice of the iconic plumber. We'll see how that one goes. But regardless of that, Hotel Mario did not negatively impact Mario's overall legacy. Nintendo, despite never releasing a CD-based add-on for the Super Nintendo, would continue to find success in the industry and is still relevant today, as their success with the Nintendo Wii, the DS line of portable consoles, and the current Switch system has demonstrated. Philips, as a company, would stick around in the video game market until around 1996, after which it would pretty much abandon the CDI altogether though it did license the technology out to a bunch of other companies, like we had talked about, to continue making the console, and third-party publishers kept releasing titles for it for several years thereafter. Interestingly, the CDI would remain a pretty big deal in the Netherlands, which I'm assuming is because Philips is actually based in the Netherlands, so they, they themselves have a very strong Dutch heritage within the company. While I don't think Hotel Mario will ever be remembered as a premier Mario experience, the circumstances that led to its development are nonetheless a critical piece of gaming lore in history. The console wars brought about a number of oddities in the 90s, and I must say, there might not be many all that more odd than seeing the superstar Mario relegated to what is effectively a hotel bellman for the entire game. It's almost like a fever dream, but it did, in fact, happen. We are now going to transition to talk more about Hotel Mario specifically and how it felt to play it recently, a good 30-ish, almost 30 years after it was released. So to do that, we have to first start by describing the game and how it actually works. So as with many Mario titles, your goal is to save Princess Peach. Peach has been kidnapped by Bowser, as is often the case, and you must solve the mystery of her disappearance and find her and save her from bowser in order to do that rather than navigating a bunch of different worlds as is typical with most mario adventures you have to navigate seven different hotels that are located across the mushroom kingdom each of which have different obstacles enemies and tricky traps embedded within the environments each hotel that you go to has multiple floors. There are 75 total levels in uh, total throughout the game. So across those seven different hotels, there are 75 levels. Each floor of a hotel is considered a level, and each floor is effectively a single screen, though there are a couple of hotels, the last two in particular, where each of the levels, so to speak, actually had two screens that you needed to complete both of which had to be beaten uh, in sequence before it would count as you beating the level so it definitely got more complex and more difficult as the game went on as far as the actual act of playing the game the main gameplay loop consisted of you walking around a series of series of floors within a given hotel level and each of those floors had a number of doors that you would have to close. And the goal was to make sure every single floor or every single door on a single screen would be closed, which would then kill all the enemies or destroy all the enemies that were left on the screen and enable you to move on to the next level of the game. Now, to do that, you would have to navigate And as you would go into different rooms, you might be able to find power-ups like mushrooms or fire flowers. By the way, the fire flower is absolutely overpowered in the game. If you can get the fire flower, do not lose it because it it is absolutely an overpowered item and makes the game dramatically easier if you can acquire that particular power-up. So as you go through the game, you may open up a door and you may find a power up opening a door may in fact have an enemy spawn on you or near you and charge towards you that you will have to either avoid or jump on to kill or shoot with your fire flower power in order to destroy the enemy. Um, some of those doors had enemies, some had power ups, others did absolutely nothing. There were some doors that were kind of secrets where if you opened it and entered the room, all of the enemies on the screen would die Other doors would neutralize all of the traps on a given floor of a hotel. So there was some variety there. And moving between the floors in a given screen, you would navigate via elevators. So if you went into an elevator, it would, generally speaking, take you up to the next floor. It may or may not be the direct next floor. And some of the screens within the different hotels, you would enter the elevator on, say, floor one And that would then bring you up to maybe floor four. So there was a little bit of trying to figure out and recognize what the patterns were in order to be able to navigate the screens effectively as you were trying to close all the doors. Now, at the end of each of the hotels, there was a boss fight that had its own special level and its own Extra difficulty because you had to beat these bosses. The way to beat the bosses, very similar to the rest of the game, you had to make sure that all of the doors in a given screen or on a given screen were closed. You could hop on the boss's head, you could make them kind of sort of fall off the screen, but they would always come back and they would usually barge through one of the doors and leave it open that you then have to reclose at some point. And that was fairly typical of the rest of the game because as you would navigate on a given floor, there were enemies that would try to stop you. Each of those floors had multiple platforms of the levels like we were talking about where you had to navigate, but there was no collision detection whatsoever between those platforms, which meant if you jumped too high and there was an enemy above you, you would potentially bump your head right on that enemy, even though there was a ceiling above your head. So there was no collision detection there. You would jump and you would bump into those enemies. And I will say a number of the floors had a lot of enemies running around. And it was very easy while you're trying to avoid one enemy on your immediate platform to accidentally jump too high and hit your head on another enemy, die, and then have to redo the entire level. That was a major source of frustration, by the way, as I play the game. We'll talk more about that in a couple minutes. One of the other areas of what I guess how they tried to introduce challenge in the game is you may close a door and then it may be reopened by an enemy at some point. And there are some levels where you may have to close the door three, four or five times before you eventually get it to stay closed. And even then, you have to move relatively quickly because there is a time limit for every single level. Now, you can save in between levels, and even though you have limited lives with the ability to save the game, it doesn't really matter. You can just restart from whatever level you last saved it. So there is a bit of that functionality there where even if you mess up, you really don't lose all that much progress. Though there are some floors which are absolutely horrible to try to beat Because of the way it's designed or the number of enemies that they have or the types of enemies that they have combined with the traps on the floor, it's just sometimes not a very fun experience. Definitely a little bit of frustration creeps in as you play the game. So before we start talking more specifically about things like the graphics, the sound, the narrative, all that good stuff, I do want to take a look at the back of the box because... As was often the case when games came out around this time, you didn't always have magazine reviews to go off of. You didn't always have the internet available to be able to look up additional details and certainly not gameplay videos. So a lot of times when you would buy these games, you would go off of what the box said and what the marketing team for the game put together. So for Hotel Mario, the back of the box says, An original Mario Brothers game available only on CDI." Bowser has taken over the Mushroom Kingdom. He's captured Princess Toadstool and is holding her in one of the seven hotels in the kingdom. Only you and Mario can free the princess, but you'll have to battle Koopas, Power Bombs, Bonsai Bill, Spiny Monty, Pat the Bat, and other nefarious nasties. And then there's a bunch of other, uh, the same exact text, albeit in different languages, because Philip C.D.I. was... Fairly well known and used across the world. There were also a couple of screenshots on the back of the box, and it does say produced by Philips Fantasy Factory and licensed by Nintendo. So, we are now going to talk more specifically about the individual elements of the game, and we're going to start by talking about the graphics. The game actually looks pretty good characters were detailed the environments were effective and nice to look at animations in the game were actually pretty smooth and appeared to run at 60 frames per second honestly the game looked fine the game looked good the cutscenes however oh no oh 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 no they were not they were not good at all they looked so so bad and this isn't just present day me talking obviously Nowadays we have such a high quality of animation and video production, and we just take a lot of stuff for granted because in today's world, this it's just dramatically better than what it used to be. These cutscenes were bad, not just from today's perspective, they were bad from the perspective of anybody who's ever tried to draw something. They were just Really, really poorly done. Uh, you, you've got to... I'm sure many of you have already watched a YouTube video on this. If you haven't, take a look. Or go look it up and, tr- and watch the, the animated cutscenes in Hotel Mario. And you will see a level of quality that almost defies logic. It basically looked like somebody took Microsoft Paint and created animated full-screen GIFs. That said... They do kind of approach the so bad it's good kind of territory. Kind of, sort of. You got to look at it a little bit ironically um, to, to get a little bit of enjoyment out of the cutscenes. And there are a number of people on YouTube, by the way, that looked at Hotel Mario, looked at these cutscenes, and basically used that as the basis for. Their critique and criticisms of the game. If you look at just the the cutscenes, you're absolutely right. They're pretty bad. Uh, the rest of the game, there are some redeeming qualities. We're going to talk about that. So, other than the cutscenes, though, the graphics and animation throughout the game, actually surprisingly decent. And act, it surprised me that the game was uh, looked as competent as what it did. Moving on to the sound and music for the game. The music was a little bit hit or a miss. There were different musical tracks for various levels of the game. And for the most part, those tracks sounded okay. And the music matched the environments that you were navigating. Um, and the sound effects, they all felt like they belonged in a Mario title. If you picked up a coin, you would get a very traditional kind of coin, blip, blip, blip kind of noise. Um, by the way, that's not the real noise that the coins make. I'm not very good at sound effects. But regardless... The coin sounded fine. The enemies sounded fine. Jumping around sounded okay. My biggest issue as it came to sound and music was actually with the main theme of the game. It felt like a silly carnival style song that to me was just out of place. When I think of Super Mario and I think of all the different Mario games, I think of that iconic soundtrack. And... Yes, the original Super Mario Bros., the very first Super Mario Bros. level and music that you hear, is probably one of the most well-known musical tracks in all of gaming. And it has been done countless times over. And each of the Mario games that have followed have kind of had their own character as it relates to their musical style. And for the most part, nearly every musical piece in Mario games are just phenomenal, and they really are done incredibly well. Hotel Mario, eh, the individual tracks, okay. The main theme, no. I did not like the main theme at all. It was just way too silly. It did not fit in with what I believed the sound aesthetic for a Mario game should be, and that's partially because I've been conditioned by all of the other Mario titles to kind of When you hear a Mario song, you can kind of pick it out. You could say, oh, yeah, you know what? That's probably that probably belongs to a Mario game. Even if you've never played the game in question, you can pretty much say, yeah, that sounds like Mario. Hotel Mario does not sound like Mario. So even the individual tracks in the levels didn't really sound like a Mario game. They weren't bad if you look at them independent of that. Um, But the main title theme, I did not like at all. Sound effects, however, were okay. Not too much to complain about there. So moving on to the narrative and story, uh, we kind of talked about this a little bit before, but basically you have to save Princess Toadstool, and to do that you have to navigate those seven hotels, and in between each of those hotels you would have a horribly animated cutscene that would play in between that would advance the story until eventually you beat the game, you save the princess. Oh no, spoilers, I'm sorry, but no, that's the way every single Mario game ends, so I don't think there's too... Too risk or too much risk in talking about that Uh, but basically the game was very light on the story front and honestly most mario games are there is the general story around a lot of mario games but once again they're mostly platformers and platformers don't necessarily need the deepest stories to be effective games it's really more about the gameplay hotel mario really no different it's really all about the gameplay here as well Um, so the story while there is one, isn't something that I would write home about. Although I will say, for a game that's pretty much just about closing doors in hotels, the story kind of worked within that context. It's just not something that is going to win any awards for um, (laughs) for really anything. But it was not horrible, I guess. It's just mediocre. And you know what? Mediocre is kind of the way I'm thinking about a lot of this so far. It's like, it's just there. It's not that it's horrible. It's not that it's bad. It's just kind of, eh, you know what I mean? It's just not nothing that is terribly impressive thus far. So moving on to the playability and controls. And I want to note here that I played the game using a CDI gamepad. So I do have a CDI. I actually have two CDIs, which is another story in and of itself. But like I said, I love the CDI. I love full motion video games, even though a lot of them are, are really not that great. I just love it for some reason. So I do have a CDI gamepad, an actual Philips CDI gamepad that I played the game with. So the controls and the way the game controlled were pretty okay. I didn't really have too much of an issue playing the game or controlling the character, though I will say that it did take some getting used to to understand the game's physics. The physics in the game and the inertia for your characters and the jump distance and the jump height and all that kind of stuff, that took a little bit of getting used to because it is not the same as a traditional Mario experience. It was something that that did require a little bit of learning and a little bit of development of muscle memory to be effective in the game. Once you got that, though... Not a horrible, control-based game. It was was actually okay. So up to this point, overall, it sounds like the game is surprisingly decent. So if all of those individual elements were not so bad, why did it feel absolutely awful to play the game? And you know what? I got to take that back. It didn't feel absolutely awful, but there are a number of issues that we need to talk through. And the first one I want to discuss in depth is the difficulty of the game. It was all over the place. The early hotels in the game were fine. Maybe they're a little bit too simple, actually, but they really weren't all that bad. But there were a couple of hotels that were considerably more difficult than others. And I want to talk very specifically about two of the hotels in the game, because there were a couple of times where I really felt like banging my head into a wall just to numb the pain, because it was just that that bad. The first big difficulty spike was the Ice Hotel. And just to paint the picture here, every single walkway in that hotel made you slip and slide around. And you might say, well, yeah, of course, it's an ice world. It's an ice hotel. You would expect there to be icy uh floors that you would slide around on and there's been ice in Mario games before, so not really out of place here and I would say yes, I absolutely agree with you. The issue here, though, is that the physics just didn't feel good. The physics of sliding around on the ice felt really awkward, and that made navigating the icy world really cumbersome to do, and it, made, it resulted in more deaths than what I would have liked, and because you have to redo the entire level when you die... It's something that just was an encumbrance. It it dragged that part of the game down, especially because the hotels before that were not that bad. They were kind of gently ramping up the difficulty, and I was having an okay time with those early hotels. As soon as I hit the ice hotel, I was like, no, this, this is not feeling great right now at all. And that was the first moment in the game where I started thinking, uh, this one is not feeling too good just yet. Uh, But then there were some other hotels and okay, the game kind of ramped up the difficulty more. The next big issue that I hit was Wendy's Hotel. So let's talk about this one. Not only were the enemies incredibly frustrating and there was one enemy in particular which should go die in a fire because it was absolutely horrible. Basically, what would happen is the enemy would spawn and it was effectively a homing missile that would just go right towards you. And because like we talked about before, there's no collision detection between platforms in a given screen or on a given screen, you would have multiple platforms where there are these enemies that are running towards you. And you're trying to avoid the one that's running towards you on your platform. But if you jump up, there might be an enemy above you that's running towards you as well, albeit on that platform. And you jump right through the ceiling, you bump your head on that enemy, and you die and have to redo the whole thing. Incredibly frustrating. That enemy design was probably the worst enemy design, in my personal opinion, within the entire game. And it dragged the entire experience down. But the other thing that I had a major issue with here is that for Wendy's Hotel, each of the levels, so there were 10 levels in the hotel, each of the levels had two floors that you had to beat, which meant in fact, two screens. So each screen, typically a floor is a screen. You get through that screen, you've then moved on to the next level of hotel. In Wendy's Hotel, there were two screens for every level. And in order to beat the level, you had to beat both floors without dying at all that coupled with the very frustrating enemy design was just a recipe for disaster and it just slowed things down to a crawl it made it feel so cumbersome it was also incredibly difficult so you combine the enemies with the fact that you have to get through two screens for every single level before you can save the game and i know it doesn't sound like a lot two screens big deal well It kind of padded out the game a lot because it was an incredibly difficult experience. Now, like we talked about, to combat the difficulty, the game does provide some power-ups that you can only get by opening doors to rooms that were otherwise closed. The only issue there is that sometimes when you open those doors, the doors would spawn more enemies, and occasionally those enemies would spawn literally on top of you, impossible to avoid. And that basically made it a very artificially difficult and frustrating experience. And that wasn't just Wendy's Hotel; that was just the entire game, where they might spawn an enemy directly on top of you. Wendy's Hotel was the biggest uh, issue because of the fact that that one enemy type that would that would run directly towards you, and if they spawned right next to you, you have very limited opportunity or time to avoid that. Or you're just gonna die. And if you're in Wendy's hotel and you have to beat two floors to beat a level, you're gonna really get pissed off. I know I was. I was very frustrated with the game. I did mention earlier that the flower power-up is totally overpowered. It is it is actually incredibly overpowered. If you can get the flower power up, just hold on to it. Do not do not lose that thing. Just stand in a corner and fire some fireballs and just keep going. Do not lose that power-up. It is it is the elixir of life. It enables you to do things that would otherwise be incredibly frustrating. Now, that being said, you can't really count on that because you will get hit by other enemies. You will lose the power-up. It will be a frustrating experience, but if you can get that flower and you can hold on to it for a little bit, the game for a certain period of time actually becomes a Fun. Anyway, other than those difficulty spikes, the biggest issue was mostly that the game becomes tedious to play pretty quickly. There just aren't enough combinations of closing doors and avoiding enemies that can make the experience fun over 75 levels of gameplay, especially considering that 25 of those levels, the 10 in Wendy's Hotel, and then 15 levels in the final hotel, Bowser's Hotel, both contained double the screens. So, At the end of the day, you have to beat 100 screens worth of just closing doors, and a lot of times those doors would be reopened by enemies multiple times, and it just created a very tedious experience to play the game. I do want to say, though, that there were some floors that were legitimately fun to play, and the ones I loved and I didn't use that word lightly. I loved a couple of floors where the game turned into almost like a pseudo bullet hell kind of game where bunches of enemies would be flying around that you had to be avoiding or jump on top of to kill and they would come from diagonal directions on all sides and you really had to kind of time your movement and time your jumps effectively. It wasn't about like a homing kind of thing. Like what we talked about with the enemies in Wendy's hotel, it was just a bullet hell kind of experience. And those were surprisingly fun. It was actually fun to try to avoid the creatures that were flying around. Sometimes you have to pause and then start moving. Sometimes you have to hide in a room to let them fly by because one of the mechanics, we didn't really talk about it. We said you can go into the rooms, but you can actually stay in a room indefinitely Until uh, an enemy passes and then you can come out and then continue to navigate the world. The one area that kind of doesn't work is on the boss fights because bosses can go in the rooms after you and destroy you. So other than the boss fights, you can kind of hide away and for the most part be safe. Um, So there were some floors, a handful, not all that many that were legitimately fun to play. And I feel like if they would have doubled down on that mechanic, kind of that bullet hell mechanic kind of view and ramped up the difficulty there, you might've had a really fun game on your hands. But I can honestly say that independent of those few levels that I legitimately enjoyed, most of the game's concept and just the game as a concept wore out its welcome around 20-ish levels into the experience. It just didn't sustain itself for the long haul. And for what it's worth and for everybody's awareness, I did in fact play the entire game on a Philips CDI using Philips CDI peripherals. It was not that great. (laughs) So where does it sit? Is it, did it reach our pantheon of classic gaming? Well, no, it did not. I'm sure you could guess that. It's a, Hotel Mario is really an example of a game where the sum of its parts actually is less than the individual components of the game. If I look at the graphics, the sound, the controls, I look at those individually, there's nothing particularly glaring to complain about, other than the animated cutscenes, which, as I was playing through the game, legitimately made me reconsider a number of my life choices. But other than the cutscenes, the problem here is really the overall concept of the title and the design and implementation of that concept. It's just not fun, other than certain small sections of the game. I could see this working as a minigame in a Mario Party or a Warrior Wear kind of title, and it would probably work. I think that, that the concept in a bite-sized piece would actually be okay. As a standalone title, though, I was so bored by the end that I couldn't wait to finally beat Bowser and finish the game. This is one of those titles that I will not be going back to ever. Was it the worst experience I ever had? No, absolutely not. Did the development team try to create something worthwhile? Yeah, I legitimately think they did. And I believe anyone who jumped on the meme bandwagon to claim that this was a truly awful game that nobody should be playing ever, they didn't really give it a chance. I think they saw those those animated cutscenes and just decided to jump on that bandwagon, and make fun of the title. There are parts of the game that work. It's just not that good of an experience in aggregate. I just want to be clear, though. You do not need to play this game. You should not play this game, at least not to completion. If you want to play the first couple of hotels just to see what it's like, you may actually have a little bit of fun. But after that, it becomes an exercise of perseverance rather than actual enjoyment. For those reasons, I believe Hotel Mario should remain a footnote in gaming history. It's an interesting piece of history, sure, especially as it relates to the Nintendo Sony Philips love triangle that ultimately led to the creation of the Sony PlayStation, a Super Nintendo CD add on that never happened, and an incredibly limited computer like device being marketed as a video game console. But as a game, I'd steer clear. There are many other Mario experiences that you all should play. Hotel Mario, however, is not one of them. That was our episode on Hotel Mario. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out and let me know how we're doing or give me some feedback, advice, suggestions on future topics to cover, there are a couple of ways you can reach out to me. I do have a Twitter handle, which is at ClassicGamingT. I also have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. So if you have any advice or would just like to talk about classic games or classic technology in general, shoot me a note. I am definitely interested in having the discussion. Before we sign off, I do want to mention that next week's episode is going to be focused on the action RPG, which was released on the PC, Shadowcaster. So if you have any particularly fond memories of that title, feel free to write in. I'm definitely interested in hearing what you all think. Similarly, I recognize that this podcast probably lives just about everywhere that podcasts typically live. So wherever you're listening to this, if you wouldn't mind leaving a review or letting me know how we're doing, it would be greatly appreciated. This is not about bolstering star counts. It's not about getting a bunch of five star reviews, though, if that happens, awesome. That means we're doing something right. But I I just legitimately want to understand and know what everybody thinks and my goal has always been to create the best possible podcast for everybody. And the only way to do that is if I can gather some of that feedback and make sure that any anything that we should be doing a little bit differently, we do, we take that feedback into account. Or if we're doing things right, we should continue to do those. Getting that feedback really does help. So if you feel so inclined, I would love to hear what you're thinking, leave a review on your podcast aggregation engine of choice. We are still growing. We're still developing this community. I'm having a great time. I hope you all are as well. We will be back in around a week with Shadowcaster. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone.